Welcome to Game Like Training Radio, where we're helping you to understand how to learn and practice more effectively. I'm one of your hosts, Cordy Walker. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Cook. And I am super excited to get this thing started. Season two, we've been hard at work, myself and Cordy. And we have an incredible lineup of guests from golf coaches to your academic professors so uh yeah here we are yeah no i mean and we start off with one of the most well-known researchers in the field of learning period not just golf we start off with dr andrews erickson you actually went down and hung out with him at that was florida state right where he's at yeah that was awesome florida state very cool yeah and, and so we sat down and and we had a chat with him this is really fun great way to start off the season and one other thing that we're doing here to start off the season is we're going to give away a few copies of your book, Expert Golfer. That's right. We have a post over on the Golf Science Lab Facebook page that is pinned to the top, kind of announcing the launch of launch of the podcast, talking about your book. And so here's what you need to do to enter to win your copy of the book. We're going to pick five winners randomly. So hopefully you have a pretty good chance. You head over there and comment on that Facebook post. So tag someone in the comments who needs more game-like training in their golf. That shouldn't be too tough of a, of a request, should it, Matt? That's not too difficult. It's not too much effort right there. That should be pretty easy. We all need more game-like training in our lives, don't we? <laughs> That's right. We all do. <laughs> and then other than that, uh, if people remember at the end of last season, you ran a five, turned out to be a six-week course, uh, just kind of yeah. diving into some of your core like principles and elements, yeah? That's right. We covered a lot of the motor learning concepts and the deliberate practice concept and then i think i'm pretty sure the last one was basically a question a q a question and answer from the people that uh, got involved with the course so that was fun yeah yeah so we we ran that live over over that time and had a bunch of great folks join us and if you want to go through the recordings of that that is now available in our golf science lab training portal so you can head over to training.golfsciencelab.com and see that along with all of our uh, other training products. So without further ado, let's get into this with Dr. Andrews Erickson. All right, we're excited to be back here on Game Like Training Radio. Uh, really, really, really looking forward to today. We have on Dr. Anders Erickson. Uh, he just came out with an awesome book called Peak. He's one of the foundational researchers in this field of learning. And Matt's actually driven down to go hang out with him. Uh, so we're excited to, excited to have him here. So I, if people don't know you, just what's a quick like minute-long um, bio on, on kind of your background? I think like a lot of people, I started out as a kid being really interested in understanding how people that I admired, you know, what was going on in their minds. And and I think pretty much from there on, you know, I've been sort of pursuing that, trying to find methods that would allow you as a scientist to identify people who can really do things that other people can't. And then, you know, finding methods for figuring out what's going on in their heads as they're doing it but also trying to understand what is it that they did in order to be able to do this exceptional performance. Because we find that nobody starts out exceptional. It's a long process of improving. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we know you from, what most people know you from is deliberate practice. Do you just want to start us there? Most people, I would assume, have heard of it, but just with a quick kind of definition and maybe a story about how you came upon that term. Yeah. So... 
I think what we realized when we were looking at the effects of practice and experience, it's amazing how amateur golfers and a lot of professionals can spend decades doing the same thing over and over. But when you actually try to measure how well they're doing, they're not getting any better. And it seems to hold true for, you know, uh, school teachers. If you measure how much they're able to improve their students' performance, so you can compare that across teachers, uh, there's really very little benefit after the first couple of years. The same thing is true for psychotherapists and virtually any kind of person who is just accumulating experience. Now, what we found was that when you're looking at individuals who are really rapidly improving, and some of the earliest work we did was with music students, and there you can actually see how rapidly over being at the music academy, they get better and better. We try to hone in on what is it that, you know, was actually changing their behavior as opposed to, you know, just allowing them to do it faster, but actually being able to do it better. And we found that in, in music, uh, you have a teacher who actually, you know, assesses the student and then tries now to identify what is it that this student could actually improve with the weeks of training. And then you actually find a training activity that that student can be engaging in by themselves and by actually hearing what they're doing, they can get immediate feedback about whether they've been able to make that change. So we call deliberate practice that kind of training where you have a skilled teacher who's actually assessing now, here is something that you should be able to change. Here's training activities that would be the tools for you to change it. And then basically you gradually improve various aspects until you now develop your performance to the level that, you know, you, you were able to do. And that's kind of different from, for example, a lot of athletes who go out and just sort of try to improve. They don't really know exactly what they need to be doing. They're just motivated to improve. But without actually knowing now what teachers know based on often centuries of knowledge from elite athletes who've been able to improve, they can now actually help that individual identify what are the appropriate changes that they can achieve and what are the most effective training activities that would allow them to make those changes. Yeah, it's interesting because for most, especially me being on the range and seeing golfers coming to the range and trying to practice, they do most of the time just do the same thing over and over again, usually practicing quite poorly and expect to get better just because they've put in X amount of hours. Like I, I went to the range today and I, and I hit balls for three hours and just the, the perception of how much time they've spent on a task not necessarily what the task was, but how much time they spent on it leads them to believe that they should just automatically get better, which I guess that takes me into um, this notion of 10,000 hours. I know Malcolm Gladwell mentioned some uh, wrong things in his book, <laughs> but it seems to, to come up quite often for me with parents, uh, not necessarily the younger students, but most parents that I've experienced uh, spending time with, they they believe that uh, the 10,000 hour rule, you know, the, the, the student or their child has to get the reps in. They have to put the hours in, not necessarily what they're doing with the hours, but they have to put the hours in. So 
what do you think is a good way to explain to people that you know it's not necessarily putting ten thousand hours in what has the research shown us and how can we correlate the time spent on task rather than the tasks that we're actually doing right so, so it's a little complicated i think in the sense that if you don't spend more than 50 hours you're not going to be world-class or even extremely good at anything so what i think gladwell got right is this sense if you're going to be extremely good at something you're going to have to engage in the domain related activities for many thousands of hours but i think where we disagree with him it's not putting in the hours that makes a difference and and i guess that relates back to when i was talking about professional experience so if you have a nurse who've been doing nursing for 30 years and then you expose her to problem situations dealing with patients what we find is that she's not doing any better than maybe somebody who's only been on the job for six months so, so basically, when it comes to actually training, you have to train the things that you want to get better. And if you're going to change your performance, you need to basically engage in activities that changes it. And I would argue when I talk to golfers, you know, very often they kind of hit the drivers and, and they kind of look how far it goes, you know, and they just hit and hit. When you actually read biographies of expert golfers, what they do is that for every shot, they actually have an image of what they want to do, and they keep changing that. So they're really trying to get more control over their shots so they can consistently aim it uh, in appropriate ways when they go out on the golf course. And I think that idea here that, that if you just keep doing something, you know, like driving a car, it turns out that you're not a very good driver. So if you experience a really difficult traffic situation, the number of years of driving that you've had is not a good predictor of how well you would be able to handle that. The kinds of people who seem to be able to handle very difficult driving situations are ambulance drivers who actually have to cross you know, busy streets, and they get a lot of experience here to anticipate exactly what's going on, and they're not caught up in this automatic things where, where you actually are almost driving for minimal effort when you're driving you listen to the radio or you do all sorts of other things yeah so that's like um tacit knowledge knowing like more what could happen and anticipating the uh, an expert or a better golfer would be more likely to anticipate close to the future outcome or get closer to the future outcome right so, so, so basically it. when you have a shot and you're actually trying out to have a particular shot mm -hmm. i would predict here that the expert golfer would think through, you know, where is the ball going to hit? How far is it actually going to be rolling? So you actually have kind of a mental image of what happens. And then when you hit the ball, you can actually observe whether, in fact, your mental model of what was going to happen is correct. And if it's not correct, then maybe you need to sort of really rethink and try to figure out why were you actually making that misjudgment about the fact that it didn't roll at all and how would you be able to sort of now build up your mental representation? So next time you encounter a similar situation, you're going to be able to make better predictions about what's going to happen to the ball. I have a question here with this concept of time and talking about like plateaus or, or reaching a certain level and, and getting stuck there. What you've done has gotten you to a point and that's not getting you past that. 
what are some of your thoughts on that of how to like get over those those plateaus and find what you need to do to to change in your in your practice to improve performance? And 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 I would want to distinguish the case here where you actually could have access to a teacher who's actually been teaching individuals who were at your level and were then able to actually go beyond that to reach a higher level. So if you seek out a teacher who has been actually taking other golfers to the higher level where you're kind of stuck currently, I would, in my experience, and, and I think this is particularly true in music and in some other sports I talk to coaches, that often you're limited by the way you're doing it and that may be actually very hard for you to actually self-diagnose what it is that you should be doing that would actually allow you now to kind of improve. And, and I think in golf, for example, being consistent is in some ways an underestimated value. So if you can actually control your shots, you're going to do a whole lot better than a lot of golfers who really can't control their shots, which means that they were going to be in situations now that may require one or two extra strokes just to get out of them because they didn't really get the shot uh, placed in such a way as they intended. But if you know where your shot is likely to land and basically where the ball is going to be, I think you can actually you know, save a lot of shots on a, on, a, on a basically round of golf based on just being consistent. Now, obviously, if you can combine control with length when there is room for a long shot that obviously would be even better so it's really seeking out a teacher that has has experienced those students that have maybe reached what they might think is a plateau but then taken to them taking them to that next level and figuring out what aspects of performance that the teacher was able to pick out that maybe the student became blinded to or even the previous teacher may have right you know and, and i think what's interesting is that if you look at music in the end of the uh, 20th uh, century basically what you found you know or, or during the 19th century then people were actually having pieces that they thought that only a few people in the world could actually play as training basically from the beginning now improved so people had better fundamentals now, basically, these types of pieces are, you know, any student who's graduating from a music academy would be able to play these pieces. So some of the limitations may, in fact, be a function here of how do you actually start it out? So if you actually have contact with a golf coach who will actually be able to help you develop the correct fundamentals early on, then you don't get into the situation that many athletes encounter where they've actually learned to do something incorrectly. So they actually would have to spend maybe a year reprogramming what they're doing in order now to be able to advance. And, and I think the more that we would be able to kind of accumulate skilled teachers who would be able to actually not to give the factual background, I think that's going to be really important because I can see that if you have a student and they're not improving, it's maybe hard for you to kind of self-diagnose and say, well, maybe I had a role here in allowing this player to develop the stroke in this particular way. That, that seems to be the limiting factor now. I mean, that just 
rings so many bells for me. When I'm working with some of the really younger students, like six, seven years old, because I've experienced junior golfers for a long time, I've seen what the uh, struggles are with, you know, just growing limbs, body limbs and, and, and um, you know, going through puberty and things like that. So uh, that rings true when I'm working with junior golfers. I'm able to understand those types of things that might come up, educate, most importantly, the parents about it and the student at the same time in order for them to maybe bypass what might have been a plateau. And so they're able to understand these struggles and potential struggles and keep working and improving slowly over time just because I've experienced it as a golf coach. Now, 10 years ago, you know, I, I wouldn't have known any of them things. So a student, that same student may have plateaued for many years just because I didn't know. So that, that just rings, rings a lot of bells for me. That, that's. And, and, and I think it's interesting because it relates to this idea of the natural talent yeah. where, where basically you kind of assume here that if you leave the kid to their own devices, they're actually going to find their unique uh, talent. And if you mess around with it, and I think what we're finding here in you know, all sorts of domains is that you need to guide uh, basically kids to do it correctly, which would actually put them now on the path that would then, you know, allow them to actually reach uh, kind of the highest level of performance. And I think somebody commented on the fact that they were looking at young golfers today on their golf swings for individuals who had a long history and that. It's so much better than they recall, you know, basically their peers of the same age, you know, their swings. And my feeling is that that, that recognition here that, you know, you need to work with a teacher who actually has so much more experience than you have. And so unless you believe that there's this, you know, genetic kind of thing that is going to bloom here, if you just leave it alone, you know, I think you're giving your children a real disadvantage compared to their peers. And I think if you look at something like, you know, typing, if you ask people to just start typing by themselves, they're going to do, you know, all sorts of weird things. Whereas we know, you know, that touch typing ends up being so much more effective in terms of being able to type at a high speed. But basically, if you do the finger thing and look, you know, you're going to be limited. So, that gives kind of a nice illustration here on what the natural method will actually limit your ultimate performance because with typing we see exactly what the difference is between the effective performance and basically the naturally adopted performance. What are some of the, the biggest mistakes that you see people make when they're trying to implement um, a deliberate practice uh, into, into their training? Like what are, what are some of the common areas where people, people go wrong? That you've seen? Well, you know, I think one of the things that I find quite interesting, and that is uh, the idea here that, you know, you should actually push yourself and you should be fully concentrated when you practice. And I think what's interesting, and that may be even more true in team sports, where when some athletes are practicing, you know, they're going at 50%. And then they actually, you know, go at 100% when they're competing because now it's really important. I think that realization that if you're going to improve while you're practicing, you better basically put in that 100% when you're practicing. 
And I talked to some uh, teams here, and, and I guess a lot of the players kind of realize that. Well, that then puts you one step further. If you're going to be 100% when you're training during the week, that means that you need to sort of you know sleep. So you have to be careful now so you're rested. So once you're actually going to practice, if you're totally tired and can't concentrate, you're sort of wasting everyone's time. But if instead, you know, you're trying now to lead sort of a healthy life, that goes also with, you know, having an appropriate diet. So you basically, you know, once you are entering the practice time, you know, you're going to be putting in time. And, and I also think that sometimes practice may be too long, you know. So, and that goes entirely with this idea, if you want to accumulate 10,000 hours fast, if you put in 12 hours per day, you're going to do that faster. But I think the insight that we have now is that even world-class players, they can't really concentrate for more than, you know, maybe four or five hours a day. And, and that means that they're really not going to do anything else that is really exhausting. So. What we find is that our musicians, when they put in four or five hours a day, you know, they would eat and then they would kind of take a nap and then basically they would kind of recuperate because they were, you know, concerned here about being 100% when you start the practice the next day. And I think having that kind of attitude, that also allows you not to pick challenging tasks as opposed to when I talk to some athletes when they're training. You know, when they see the training exercise, they're maybe slow to get it started. And then basically they're almost ending it before it's really over. Compare that to those athletes that more or less start early and actually sustain now and really in some ways pushing themselves so they're actually getting something out of this training activity as opposed to more or less just doing enough here not to basically be penalized for uh not doing the training. So instead of like spreading yourself thin, which with a bunch of different things, just to, to reserve your energy and focus on, on one thing, maybe would that be a simple way of kind of saying that? And I think in particular, when you start out with kids, what we find is that 15, 20 minutes is about as long as a child can really push themselves with full concentration. So if you're actually trying to have them go beyond that, it's almost like they're not going to economize. So they know that they're going to be pushed to do this for two hours. So basically when they're starting out, they're actually going to be more at 30%. So they know that they're going to be able to keep doing it for two hours. But if you're really looking from the perspective of changing their performance, you probably wasted everyone's time by basically setting it up in such a way here, not encouraging the child to really kind of focus. And once they can't focus anymore, you know, then it's okay for them to stop and they should be doing something else. So it's the same sort of intent and engagement that you would, that the student would have in competition. You're trying to create a practice task and set up environment that is going to bring about the same intent and focus. Right. And if you want to change how well you do under in the competition, if you're really doing so different things, that you're not really recreating the kind of challenges that you would encounter during competition, then clear why you will probably see very little benefit here of the training activity. 
That's funny. I uh, I recently with the the children, especially under the age of ten, I've started trimming my time in lessons with them down to thirty to maximum forty five minutes. Uh, I might spend time with their parent beforehand or, or after, but actual time spent in practice where it's myself and the student trying to do something, I trim that time down a lot just because of I I don't want them to you know, start off at 30% and build up. And then before they get to 100%, it's time to finish. So I've seen a lot of benefit just by trimming down the time that I'm spending with them on tasks. So that. And, and I think also it's a nice thing to actually transition the responsibility for that concentration to the child. So if you allow the child to kind of monitor when they're actually really focused and they feel that they're performing well, because if you're pushing them, too long so they're not concentrating, their performance may go off. And what you sometimes find is that, you know, you're actually starting to adapt to performing at a low concentration level. And that actually is not just waste of time. It may actually be working against you acquiring the right kind of concentration and, uh, you know, behavior. I love the chapter in the book talking about making deliberate practice like a part of part of your business or part of your life. I think that's super critical. My question is, what does deliberate practice look like in your life, like in your practice as as a researcher? Like, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, I was thinking about that. And, and, you know, I I guess I've reached now a relatively mature age, uh, uh, which makes things a little bit different. But looking back, some of the things that I think were the most helpful for me to develop my way of thinking uh, you know, occurred when I came to the States after I got my PhD and I worked with some world-class scientists. And on one occasion, that's sort of one of the maybe most important papers that I did early on was a paper on the memory training that, you know, we describe in the second chapter of the book. And the senior researcher that I did that research with, he, you know, felt like I had put in a lot of the ideas, so it was appropriate that I'd be the first author. So, you know, I wrote a draft, then basically took a look at it, and he said, you know, it's wrong here, and wrong there. But not telling me what it should be like, but just giving me feedback. And I think uh, we were pretty much between 30 and 40 versions later before he basically told me now, okay, now it's good enough for me to start working on it. And at the time, I almost felt, you know, he's wasting my time. You know, I want to write all these papers. But I think in retrospect, forcing me to try to find the solutions to the problems that he was helping me point out was extremely valuable. And that kind of interactive loop of basically me trying to solve something and him giving me feedback, and then I basically trying to work on it again. I think that you know, uh, sort of captures in some ways one of the several things that, you know, I would argue comes close to that deliberate practice part where I do have somebody who is really very capable and, and can kind of diagnose things that I can't really see. But once I've been made aware of them, I can actually try to uh, create a solution to them. Yeah. And I guess that was, there's a little delay in that as well, isn't there? where this this gentleman points out some of the things that you need to work on and you go away and do it and then you come back and it gets looked at again. So there's a little bit of a delay between 
what you think is where it should be. And then, like you said, 30 or 40 times later, it's it's ready. Right, you know, and, and I think that's a little bit like some musicians work, you know, that when they're actually preparing a piece for public performance, you know, that the way they do it is actually working through various pieces. As they're getting more skilled, they don't have to have a teacher telling them what the problem is if they're a professional. So they basically then would be working through certain things. And, and I know now when I'm writing papers that, you know, you discover some problem and, and it may take you two or three days to try to figure out, you know, how you can really address that issue in a way that is, that you're happy with and that you can actually explain in, in sort of a meaningful way to other people who are reading and or reviewing the paper. So that, that's like me with a golfer. I can, uh, an example of, uh, I won't say her name, but uh, a young girl that I work with, she's 13 years old. We've been working together now for the past six months. And when I first went out on the golf course with her, she actually hit the driver incredibly well. But then we found uh, when she ever was presented with um, a downhill slope approach shot, whether it was uh, with the irons, uh, she really struggled, and she was a really good putter, but she also struggled in bunkers. Just by seeing her in the real environment, I could see what part of the game we didn't need to work on. And then when practice came about later, I could attack those things that I saw in competition. And now we went out three days ago, and those parts of the game now, actually, she's 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 playing what seems to be relatively similar level between all these different aspects of her game. So like the musicians playing pieces and mm -hmm. figuring out what part of the piece needs to be improved on this one. That reminded me of working with this girl. Very interesting. So, so how did you create training situations for her in that downslope case? Uh, how would you be able to get a training environment where she could actually practice that? On our practice facility, we have some sloping lie areas. And we have uh, some bunkers that have bigger lips and some smaller lips. And there's, there's plenty of greens out on the range. And so I just I set up um, golf balls in different locations that required her to make adjustments. Mm -hmm. But before we went into the task, because we had a task of the goal is, you know, we're trying to get the ball over this lip on this one. We're trying to get the ball to land on the green from this one. And each ball had a specific goal. But beforehand, I did educate her briefly on some of the things that she needs to do in her setup, angle her body differently, place the ball position differently before going into the actual tasks. And so I found by watching her in the tasks, she was making small adjustments on her own, knowing what we just spoke about briefly. And, and it took weeks, but it was constantly improving, constantly getting better and better. Where she hit the ball uh, on the green one out of five times, but four weeks later, she was hitting the ball on the green three to four times out of five. So the improvement was gradual, uh, but the tasks were very specific. Oh, that, that sounds great. Wow. <laughs> I just, when you mentioned that, it reminded me of this girl. All right. You got out, Cody? I don't. I mean, I think people should go check out Peak. Uh, Anders, is there any 
your your thoughts on the book and like what people will take away from it when sitting down and going through it. Any uh, any thoughts there? Well, you know, I think the thing that makes me the most excited is when somebody sends me an email where, you know, they've been sort of trying to apply some of these ideas, you know, and, and I guess in many professional situations, it's not obvious how you would be able to translate or find the practice activities or find a teacher that actually has been able to help other individuals uh, develop. So, so when I've been talking to some uh, companies and, uh, it seems like there's an interest to develop more of a culture of learning where individuals are kind of helping each other in a more a sort of direct way where you would have now individuals who've been teaching maybe programmers deal with certain types of problems. And, and I've become aware of the fact that when it comes to programming, it's not so much getting the program to work. It's to design the program in such a way that you can keep changing it because basically newer versions will now require new coordinations. And if you programmed it in such a way that it's very complex, it's almost impossible now to revise the code in such a way that you don't get unintended problems. And that type of wisdom and skill of being able to kind of foresee how most simple you can generate the code to make it now simple to update uh, for the next couple of decades. Those types of skills, I don't think there really is a good place where you would be able to you know, get them. And, and I think for companies to offer those types of resources you know, would be to their own benefit, but also I think just attune people to this idea here of you know, trying to do things a little bit better every year. Thanks so much for listening to Game Like Training Radio, powered by the Golf Science Lab. If you want to learn more about this podcast and all the other content, head over to golfsciencelab.com to see everything. Make sure to check out the Game Like Training course that we put together. You can find that at training.golfsciencelab.com, and that is the Game Like Training course. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you all next week.